0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans to chapter eight to verses thirty-five through thirty-nine. Romans chapter eight, verses thirty-five through thirty-nine. For those of you who are visiting with us, you'll not know the culture of our church that we study verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. And we have always done that, and it's because we believe that the Bible is the holy, inerrant, and inspired Word of God that the Lord has ordered, not only its substance, but likewise the ordering of the verses. And this is our submission to the wisdom of God so that He brings to us what we need in season that you're not left at the whim of some minister trying to understand where you are in your life, but rather the Holy Spirit has free reign to speak to our church as is appropriate directly from the scriptures. And so as we study through this, you should simply know this is the progress. We've made it over uh, about a year and a half in the book of Romans, and uh, we'll press on uh, so long as the Lord should permit uh, in this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Uh, likewise, I should say that the, chapter 8, it's a wonderful uh, section of Scripture that what we have here is the Apostle Paul bringing doctrine into the lives of God's people. Uh, you may say this is doctrine for life, uh, and it is an encouragement that not only do we know particular things about Jesus, but then how we should live in light of those things. And so let's turn our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb is the law of the Lord. Let us pray together. God, you have spoken, and with your words, you hold our hearts in your hands. Father, we pray that you would minister to us this morning. Some of us come limping. Oh, Lord, some of us come paralyzed. Others of us come doubting and undercut. Oh, Lord, hanging by but a thread. Yet, O oh, Lord, we know that that thread is of your weaving. Oh, Lord, and that you have made it of pure gold in Christ. Father, we ask that you would give us understanding and cause us to sit under your word, not in judgment of it, but a people in submission to your holy will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Didn't we already study this? I know that some of you are thinking, Pastor, it's one thing to hear one sermon, but when you go one passage and then give us two sermons, it seems to be a bit too much. And yes, we did look over this last week, but admittedly, between the roar of jet engines that flew over us and the blazing heat, at least I felt as if I wanted to come back to the passage again. Likewise, during the week as I studied this passage of Scripture, one of the things that I came to note was that Paul repeats himself. He is very concerned that we should simply have our minds drawn to the love of Christ again and again within this passage. And as I thought over that, it struck me that the reason why Paul does that is he is aware of a simple fact, and it's this, that brides need to be reminded, told again and again, that their husbands love them. And that He loves them sincerely and even more than whenever their marriage began. Now, men in the room, if you don't know that, write that one down. You're welcome for the tip. Tell your wives you love them. And that's what Paul is inviting us to do again today, to hear from the bridegroom of the bride, the Lord Jesus Christ, the husband and Lord of the church, to simply say once again, I love you, church. I love you. And like those brides, we as Christians, the bride of Christ, we need to hear it. We need to hear it so much and so fresh and so constantly, day to day and in every season, that the love of Jesus is sure. That it is wonderful in its sweetness and it's ever expanding in its scope. And so friends, if that didn't sell you on it, let me just encourage you, to walk with us again through the passage. The three things that I want you to hear in the passage, verses 35 through 37, uh, the first, the daily portion of Christ's love. The daily portion of Christ's love. Secondly, verse 37, the wonderful evidence of Christ's love. The wonderful evidence of Christ's love. And then 38 and 39, closing the chapter for real this time, the eternal assurance of Christ's love. The eternal assurance of Christ's love. And so we give our attention to verse 35 through 37, the daily portion of Christ's love. I think most people, especially those of age, have some sense of young love. Maybe you fell in love with your sweetheart, your wife, your husband, and maybe your only you know, you met them at the age of five or six, and you can't even imagine a day when you didn't know them. That's not my testimony. I met my wife much later. But nonetheless, young love has a certain character to it. It's kind of like a spark thrown into a can of gasoline, isn't it? It's very explosive in its beginning. It has so much heat. It just almost blows your hair back. It's overwhelming. It's intoxicating. Sometimes it's a little bit destructive as well. And people, they know this. And I I think this is kind of what modern culture points us to. This is what love is like. It's like this thing you see in television shows. You read in novels that maybe you should or shouldn't actually read. This thing that's hot and explosive and significant and unforgettable yet momentary. The fireball goes up, it escapes into the atmosphere, it's done and it's cold in no time, and you think, well, maybe, maybe we should have put some wood on that fire, something to keep the flame burning for extended seasons. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul's talking about the love of Christ, entirely different, not the wild blazing fire of an immature romantic love. But there are people, and maybe you're guilty of it, who find in themselves this former experience of the explosion of a young love to be a thing that has left them wounded or maimed. And they think about love in a really bad way and in a a way that the Bible doesn't speak of it. You see, people off of those relationships can have fear in themselves. And I think that's why there is an epidemic of people living lives, lifelong singles. There's nothing wrong with that according to the Bible. However, people are doing this sort of thing out of a fear of opening themselves up to being hurt once again. And there's this question, I think, that really lies at the heart of this. It's the question of dependability. Can the love of that person be relied upon? And the more mature person will say, I got burned when I was young, I knew that it was hot, fast, and momentary, and here I am, left without it, and this person comes and says, hey, let's have a relationship, and they just say, will you be there when I'm sick? How about in eight months, whenever you're kind of used to uh, all the things about me, and you've kind of gotten over my laugh being cute, and now it's actually really irritating. You've gotten over all of the flash in the can of the wonder of that first spark of love, and now it's just kind of, I don't know, are you going to stick with it? Are you going to continue to do it? Do I have security in this relationship? What about when I'm no longer beautiful, whenever the hair's gone gray, whenever I've gone broke? Where will you be then? Will this last, or will we end up as one more statistic, one more family that's been split into? One more failed relationship. And you see that second portion, this idea and this fear, this insecurity of the soul. That's something that Paul is touching on here. He's aware of it, that this isn't just an abstract thing that happens in relationships between man and woman. But this is something that our own souls and the weakness of our sinful flesh will simply ask the question. I know I began well and I remember that experience and I remember my conversion. I remember my Lord, the day of my salvation, how I felt energized in body and soul. I remember it. The warm hug of the divine saying you are mine. But Lord, that's been eight months ago. That's been eight years ago. That's been 18, 28, 38, 40 years ago. Lord, Lord, can I depend on you? Because since then I've gotten sick. And since then, I've showed you that I'm not beautiful. I've shown you that I'm not lovely. I've shown you that, Lord, as I come to you, I don't come with great gifts. I come broke and broken. Is your love still mine? Can I depend on it? Is there security? Is there a place to hide under it? And Paul says, yes. There is a daily portion of the love of Christ. It is dependable. It is certain. And so verse 35, we have the question, the question of dependability and insecurity. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And this is how Paul structures this whole section as he's inviting the Christian to fix their eyes on the heart of the Lord Jesus. Again and again and again, he points us to these questions and he answers them in turn and he does it in such a unique way. It's as if he piles question on top of question on top of question to drive deeper into the heart because he wants you to ask along with him this simple question so that he can bring you to the answer from the lips of Christ the Lord. He says, will tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Whenever the going gets tough, will it separate me from him? Will it be an evidence that he's turned his back on me? Now, tribulation, this isn't a word that we often use. And I want to tell you that I don't believe Paul is talking about a coming tribulation, a thing of the end times. I think he's talking about the regular pressures of daily life. The word in Greek has a use that relates to the pressing of grapes, the pressure, the hardship We kind of call this kind of thing the daily grind of life. I probably don't need to say anything more. You know exactly what Paul's touching upon. The pressure, always the weighing down and the hardship of life whenever things really aren't pretty. Whenever things really are hard. Will that separate me from the love of Christ? Is that an evidence that he's turned his back on me? Or how about distress whenever I've been under that pressure? And my emotion and my heart is overwhelmed. And under that burden, I'm not great. If someone were to ask me, how are you doing? The honest answer would be, quite terrible. Not good. Not well. I need help. I feel like I'm sinking. That's what Paul's touching on. And he asks the question, is that evidence that Christ has turned his back on me? Does that say to me, I'm under his judgment now. He no longer loves me. We began well, but now we're splitting apart. Paul goes on and he asks the question of persecution. How about persecution? Is that an evidence that the Lord is turning his back on me? The outward attacks from people who hate you. You ever been persecuted for your faith? Maybe, maybe not. Have you had a family member despise you because you're a Christian? A coworker, or a boss despise you for the testimony of your Christian faith? Maybe or maybe not. And friends, we all might experience a day where it's not only something we see in the news cycle, but we experience it very personally and with our neighbor and with our employer and even with our friends. And Paul is saying, is that an evidence? If when that happens, will I simply know that he doesn't love me anymore? Will that be a thing that communicates that he has abandoned me? That he's given up on me? He goes on and asks the question how about famine? I dare say almost none of us have experienced this in reality, not really. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and even thinking specifically to Africa right now that are experiencing extreme famine where the providence of God doesn't seem to be putting food on the table even if it feeds the table of the soul. Does that mean God isn't for me? Does it mean he doesn't love me? He's turned his back on me. If we're starving, me, my wife, my kids, my husband, my family, we're we're starving. Does it mean he doesn't love me? Should I interpret it? in that way. He goes then to nakedness. How about nakedness? Now you read that and you say, I'm not often naked. Certainly not in public. What does Paul mean by this? And nakedness in the context has the connotation of shame. That's one aspect. Shame. You're exposed. People see the things you wouldn't have them to see of your soul, your personality, of your failures and the public shame that comes from it. It can mean that. It can likewise mean poverty. It can mean both of those things at once. Shame owing to a povertyous state. Should I then interpret that the Lord doesn't love me if I'm in this place? A public pariah, downcast and without help, naked and exposed to the world and its attacks or danger. This could be a lot of different things. It could be natural disasters. It could likewise be an encroaching army. It could be warfare. It could be lots of things. Danger. I don't need to expound upon that too much. And then sword. What does he mean there? I believe he means martyrdom. Exposed to the sword of martyrdom. Being killed for the faith. Do these things conspire together to shout loudly to me, I don't love you. I used to, but I don't need more. Then verse 36, Paul turns his attention to Psalm 44, verse 22. And it's almost an exact quotation. Read it with me. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And what is Paul doing here? Because he just could have said death, right? He's already said sword. That means that in a way course it does martyrdom is death what was Paul getting at here I think friends he's trying to convey to us that the people of God have always suffered this is a psalm of the sons of Korah this was sung corporately in the praise of the Israelites this was common it was like the hymns we just sang and this was what people had on their lips in Israel he's saying for your sake we're being killed all the day long Lord We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is saying that suffering is not new. It's not alien to the Christian life or to the people of God. Nor is it evidence that God has run out on you or abandoned you or withdrawn his love from you. How does Paul answer it in the passage? Will these things separate us from the Lord and from the love of Christ? Will these things indicate to us he no longer loves me? These daily needs, these real, ordinary hardships, these ugly realities, does this mean he has stopped loving me? And in verse 37, Paul says, no. No, none of these things separate you from the love of Christ. Nor can they, they haven't the power. No, none of these things are evidences of a hardening of the heart of God towards you. None of them, they are all normal in the Christian life and they should never be understood as the withdrawal of his love. More than that, he says, not only does it not mean that, But even in these seasons, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Praise be to God. It's a clear answer. We're going to stop right there with the first point of this sermon and we're going to move into the second and then study together verse 37 and dig into it. It's not only the answer, no, these things can't separate us from all of these different hardships and sufferings. But he says, in all of these things, in all of these situations, every single one of them, we take on a whole different character. We suffer not like the world suffers. We suffer not like the average person. No, Paul says we are more than conquerors. The ESV translates it. If you wanted to translate it another way, you are hyper-victorious, You're doing even better. You're not just beating the other team by one point, but like 50, 60, 80. It's not just as if you're only barely getting by. You're just going by the thread. You're just being held onto by the very tips of the fingers of God. No, rather you're in His full embrace and you're absolutely secure. You're more than a conqueror. It's as if these things didn't even put up any fight against you. That's what Paul is saying. And you might be sitting there and you say, but Paul, I don't feel like a hyper-victorious person. I don't feel like I've been more than a conqueror. In fact, Paul, I feel conquered. I feel like I lost the battle, Paul. Are you sure? Okay, are you sure? Okay, Paul, because you're saying all these things, but then you introduce death and you introduce martyrdom. You introduce being slaughtered, that the world has become a slaughterhouse for the people of God. How can you stand by the grave Of the one who's been overwhelmed unto death and look at them and simply say, they are victorious. How can you say it, Paul? I hear you. I want to trust you. I can't feel it. I feel beaten. I feel overwhelmed. I feel slaughtered by these things. Well, Paul gives you the answer. And he can say this and he can call us more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Now I want to point you to something. Something you may have skipped over. You've just read it casually. In all the other circumstances where Paul speaks of the love of God. He speaks of love in a present active indicative fashion. It's a present reality. But the tense here changes. And it becomes uh, really a, a thing that refers to a past action. It happened, a love. The act of love has happened. And whenever you take it in context and you ask the question, him who loved us, what is he even talking about? Is it not just love, pastor? Are you sure it's an act of love? Well, yeah, because I'm thinking about who him is. Him is the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? What was the enactment of his love? Well, the thing he did for us is this Ephesians 5 2. He loved us and gave himself up for us. It's as simple as that. It speaks to the cross. And Paul says to us, Friend, if you want to know how I can stand at the graveside and say that there is victory and even more victory than can be understood, this surpassing, magnificent, conquering victory over all these sufferings in, in Christ, it's because Jesus hung on a cross. All of the wrath of God against all of your guilt was poured out upon Him, and He died and was put in the grave. And it couldn't hold Him. Whenever He rose risen from the dead, it was an evidence of victory. And He still lives and He still reigns and He is coming again. And where is He but at the right hand of the Father? And where will you see Him? In the words of Job, you will behold Him face to face on this earth in the coming season of glory. That's where Paul can say at the edge of the grave of the Christian Friend, you are hyper-victorious. You are more than a conqueror. And even though the mouth of death holds you in its grip and its teeth for a while, Christ will come to shatter those teeth and to give you freedom. You will live again. These things will pale in comparison. And you say, but Pastor, explain to me. This seems so philosophical and so in the future. How can I get my head around it? And I'll just say simply, I'm not thoroughly certain because we're not there yet but I am certain that Christ died and I am certain that he rose again and all my heart is wrapped around the truth of this hope of the coming day of resurrection where with him I'll look down on the grave and it'll be empty and my heart will leap and I will rejoice and I will feel what the apostles felt whenever they came to the grave and he wasn't there because I'll be standing on living feet praising him once again, what is the wonderful evidences of Christ's love? It's a cross that he conquered and a grave that remains empty. That's what it is. And Paul would say, Christian, don't take your eyes off of him for a second. Know the empty, empty cross and the empty tomb and rejoice in that. Verses 38 and 39, there is the eternal assurance of Christ's love. And so read there with me. The apostle says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am sure, Paul says. That's his first word. And these are the words of experience. There's, there's been a shift. There's been a we. There's been an us. But now here, here's Paul. I'm sure. I'm convinced. I'm fully persuaded, some translations say. I have experienced this, Paul is saying. And you might say, come on now. Come on now, Paul. You didn't live like me. You're an ancient guy. You're, you're not a modern man. You don't know what it's like. You can't possibly know. But I think Paul is giving some reference to what he'll tell the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24. He does know what it's like to suffer. I'll run you through the list of some of the sufferings he tells the church he endured. He says five times he endured the 40 lashes minus one or minus one of the Jews. Beaten Horribly, Not just once, not just twice, but five times he experienced this. He was beaten, why? Because he proclaimed the gospel of the Lord. Second thing he mentions is that three times he was beaten with rods. Being beaten with leather, if that's not enough, let's take out rods and beat you. He said, I I had that three times over. He says, I was stoned once, pelted with stones. You know, that's the thing that killed the first Christian uh, martyr. And Stephen, I don't know about you. I've been hit with a stone once or twice. My sons have done it a couple times recently. But being pelted with stones is a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing. Paul says that three times he's been shipwrecked, spending a night being cast about in the sea. He's been in all sorts of danger. Danger from friends, danger from enemies, danger from robbers, danger all around him. And yet Paul can still say, I am persuaded. I'm sure. He's assured in his heart. He's sure of this. Why? Because the character of Christ's love. And then he goes into the description giving contrast. I don't know if you picked up on this, but follow along with me. I want you to be a good Bible reader. He says, neither death nor life. The grave can't separate me from him, nor can anything in this life. Angels, like a heavenly, spiritual authority, nor rulers of the earth, principalities. I believe that's what he's speaking of. Whether it's the immateriality and the spiritual attacks of angels. And you say, hang on a second, do angels attack us? Well, Paul warns us. He says, if any angel, even from heaven, teaches you any other gospel, the one i delivered to you. See so yeah, Paul understands this, that even the demonic forces and Satan himself, they're fallen angels, of course. These are spiritual attacks he mentions. He says, those spiritual attacks and the petty rulers of this earth, the kings and the armies gathered together, they can't separate me from Christ. And I'm convinced of it, I'm sure of it. The things that are now in my life, the present struggles, the things I'm overwhelmed with, or my future anxieties or the things I'm afraid of that simply may come eventually. Those things can't take me from him. I'm sure of it, nor can powers. What does he mean by powers? Anything that can overpower him. It's kind of a universal term he puts. Any other thing, any other thing, the theoretical thing he doesn't even know of, those things can't. Separate him from the love of Christ. Neither can height nor depth. I can't go to the extension of the universe, to the place where everybody's constantly looking for other forms of life and aliens that somehow prove that there is no divine. I can't go high enough or far enough, nor can I go deep enough into the earth to hide from his love. I can't be buried six feet, ten feet, fifty feet, six miles and be separated from him Nothing else in all creation, nothing, nothing, Paul is convinced, nothing can separate him, nor you, nor me, from the love of God in Christ. Do you notice how he characterizes this? Paul has a clear view of our God, a clear view of the Trinity in the heart of the Lord, The love of God in Christ the Son. Where are you there? You are united with Christ by faith in him. As a member of his body, beloved as a hand would be to the one who owns it. He says you can't be separated. And all of this is because of your loving relationship and the distinguishable yet inseparable union you have with him. I'm so sure. I'm banking my whole life on it, all of my eternity on this fact that the love of Christ will never let me go. In closing I want us to think on this, brothers and sisters, a few stanzas from a George Matheson hymn O love that will not let me go I rest my weary soul in thee I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow, may richer and fuller be. Lord, you'll never let me go, no matter how the waves crash against me. I'm yours, and I'm sure that I'm richer, even in my demise. Brothers and sisters in Christ, rejoice in the Lord and cling fast to your assurance. And if you don't know this Lord and you say, Oh, that sounds wonderful, let me encourage you to own Him today as your Savior. This is what the Christian has hope in, and this is what holds us fast through every storm, every disease, every disaster, and every struggle and suffering. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your kindness, for your love that cannot be removed. Father, we thank you that we are yours and that this is your work and not our own. Oh, Father, we pray that you would bless our church to help us to be a people who would live in assurance, oh Lord, and that we would walk in all the blessings and live every day knowing that you are our God and we are your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.